but I think it's a, it's a triathlete or, you know, elite athlete mentality in general, mm-hmm. you know, it's that almost the eighties way, you know, it, when you're not training, your competitor is, and when you meet a, meet him or her in a race, they will beat you. It's that fear that someone else is doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to pull back from that, which is very hard because there's industries, but you know, multi-billion dollar industries based around this, you know, look at yourself. Everybody's an individual, find what works for you. And there is, there is that optimal solution for you that might not be what, you know, Jan Frodeno does or Craig Alexander did, or, you know, some other Olympian, but it works for you. And in the end, you can only do what's good for you to be the best you can be. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has a slew of certifications. I unfortunately can't get through them all because it may take up the whole hour. Um, But he has level two certifications from USA Cycling and US Master Swim, as well as level one certifications from USA Triathlon and USA Track and Field. Welcome to the show, Marco Nicoli. Hi, Jesse. Great, Great to be here. Thanks for thanks for joining me, Marco. We've been talking for a little while <laughs> before we got going. Um, there's a little bit of history. We're definitely going to get into what you did. So I had you a while ago write some kind of, I'll say, research papers almost on ground contact time um, for the website. And I was uh, atrociously late on getting them out, um, partially because I was like, People need to see these. There's a lot of good information here, and I wanted to save them, but that was a dumb approach. <laughs> so I apologize for that. No uh, worries. So let's just jump right into that ground contact time. Um, we'll kind of give it a, so for anybody watching on YouTube, I will have links down in the description. Um, so you can jump to those articles if you're on SoundCloud. Um, probably have a link there on iTunes. You may have to. Google for this, so you Google Solpri, S-O-L-P-R-I, and then Run Like a Pro. Um, it's a three-part series from Marco. Um, so you kind of came up with this and almost, I'll say, pitched this to me. Um, where did kind of the thought of pulling data about ground contact time come from? Well, it was a kind of an organic thing. I started running with power a while back, maybe two, two and a half years ago, when the Stride Pod first came out. I'm a data geek to start with. Uh, my, I've just always been that way. Mm-hmm. And I thought, let's see what this generates. And after running with it for about a year, I was amazed at the amount of information I could glean from my own data, things that I never even thought about. And then one of the big numbers that I saw was changing a lot was ground contact time. So I started researching it. And just as a little thought experiment to kind of give it away, three and a half hour marathoners will hit the ground about 78,000 times. If you reduce your ground contact time by 20 milliseconds, that is very small. That's about 6% for the average runner, which is not very much, it's very possible. You'll reduce your marathon time by all, over 14 minutes. That is a big amount of time for absolutely nothing more than reducing your ground contact time, which uh, reduces your time, but doesn't increase your O2 uh, uptake or your effort. So it's really for the same fitness, you can run 14 minutes faster in a 330 marathon simply by doing some plyometrics or some slight workouts additions to your regular workouts. So that's where it all started. I'm an efficiency uh, freak, so so to speak. So I just wanted to see what can we do to make it better and what does the data tell me and how does it correlate with other things? And then the idea just got going and then I started talking to you about it and then I crystallized some of my thoughts. (laughs) And so anybody that's like a data geek like Marco, he's got like tons of charts with the actual data to look through in the articles, like I said, they're they're pretty in depth. Um, there's something you need to like sit down and chew on, really to digest absolutely everything, which is awesome. Um, so you're talking about plyometrics. Practically speaking, is it just a matter of figuring out how to make that firing sequence faster, or is there like a, a nice little mental trick, or you know, how do you go through and actually get your athletes to to make that small, very, you know, almost micro adjustment. It's a combination of physical and cardiovascular to a certain degree, because your muscle fibers, your type two muscle fibers are the ones that are going to be 
mostly responsible for that explosive power, that explosive strength jumping off the ground. But on the other hand, a lot of the power that is generated during your stride is also called elastic return, which is essentially your leg is a spring. And when you hit the ground, some of the soft tissues will contract a little bit and then spring back out. And that gives you essentially free power, free energy to propel yourself forward. And the plyometrics and explosive workouts will mostly target that aspect to basically give you that free energy, free return. Then, of course, you have that higher ability to sustain fatigue with your fast twitch muscle fibers. But all of it is a pretty straightforward uh, training program. It just takes a little bit of time because you want to make sure you don't uh, affect your uh, body in a negative way. These are very high intensity uh, damaging workouts. A lot, little goes a long way. And the biggest problem I have with my athletes is they do too much. <laughs> I mean, that's. I feel like that's pretty much par for the course, especially when we're talking about, I assume, mostly triathletes that are working yes. with you. You know, I think we're prone to think more is better, especially because we're like, oh, it's a long distance event. So the more I can do, the more prepared I am for this, you know, this period of time. But it it is a always a balancing act between your current fitness, future fitness goals, you know, and, and straddling that line so you don't get into, you know, overtraining. And, you know, having having tested that on myself and putting myself in the hospital with overtraining, trying to see how much volume I can possibly take, mm. I, I want to avoid that for anybody. I wouldn't wish it on, on my worst enemy. And, you know, going back to the more is better, there's only, you know, once you can ride 112 miles and run 26.2, there's no prize for running 75 miles off the bike or riding 600 miles. You're just trying to get that particular distance as fast as you possibly can and more is not always better uh, in that respect. Mm -hmm. So I have to back you up because most of the time overtraining doesn't lead people to be in the hospital. So can you tell me more about, about what happened there? Well, I wanted to kind of improve as a triathlete. And uh, so I put myself through a one-year program of, okay, you know what? Let me ramp up the volume. And I got up to about 37 to 40 hours a week of, of training with a fair amount of intensity. That worked very well. Uh, so I decided, well, let me see where the breaking point is. Let me just progressively do more and more and more until something happens. I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen, but I figured if I'm going to test this, I want to test it on myself to make sure I don't you know, do it to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a breaking point. I mean, it's just, you know, the, in my case, it was uh, almost complete renal failure, uh, endocrine system failure, pituitary gland, uh, you know, no longer working. You know, when you get that message from your doctor, you know, saying using the words fatal and 48 hours in the same sentence, you kind of start paying attention. But it was a combination of intensity and volume. It doesn't happen in a, in a vacuum and it doesn't happen very quickly. I mean, I'm, you're familiar and your listeners are familiar with the concept of overreaching, functional overreaching and non-functional overreaching. You have to go well beyond that to get into the full-blown overtraining syndrome and there are many, many, many warning signs that you need to blow by and ignore before you get there. So uh, if anybody has any doubt of whether they're overdoing it, take stock, take a step back and uh, and take a look at it because it's it's not something you want to go through. Yeah, I mean, it was like there's all there's all these kind of safeguards, even just mental safeguards in, in a normal workout where like yeah, I can use Mike. My, my, this is the end of week two. So I do a three week cycle, two up, one down. This is the end of week two for me. So I was in the pool this morning and just feeling tired to start with. <clears throat> and it's like, that's kind of one of the many signals where it's like, all right, your body's starting to ask for Break. recovery time, you know? And unfortunately I know it's coming up. So it's like, I kind of got warmed up and you had a pretty good set, but you know, I know at the same time, there are people that go, I'm just tired today and I'll push. And then it's the same thing. It becomes in that pattern of, I'm just tired. Like being tired is just part of the game. You know, I had, um, I had a, a, a teammate in college who for is a other diatribe I won't get into, but he essentially got his meal plan cut off from him on campus. Um, that's a whole story. It wasn't his <laughs> fault, but basically he wasn't eating enough and he was training to run national marathon 
and Ooh, he's that's just not pushing work through out. it. And right, so he got to the point where he basically his body basically acted as if he had diabetes. Like wow. So that he had like he got all kinds of messed up um, because he didn't listen to a lot of those signals that say. Hey, yeah, you probably need to eat when you're putting in 20 miles a day and doing speed work and all these kind of things. And he continued to just try to push it as you know as hard as he can. So, yeah, I think it's tough to get people to the point where they're gonna you know kind of be in your case not to pick on you. But I think it's also tough. I think you said that you were working out like 37, 40 hours a week. Like average yeah. Joe doesn't have that much time to work out to start with let alone the mental capacity. I know my breaking point, I think I got up to just shy 20. It was like 17, 18 most weeks. And that was about as far as I could go without just being toast like all the time. Well, you get, you get like you said, you get used to being tired. And yeah. that just becomes part of, you know, I mean, in, at my peak for Ironman training, I was doing 400 plus mile weeks, mm-hmm. about 70 to 80 mile run weeks and 25,000 yards in the pool on top of strength training and, and, and stretching. So that was just normal. My recovery weeks were 19, 20 hours. And I, mm-hmm. I thought I felt pretty fresh, but you know, even beyond the fatigue, I think you would need to pay attention to other factors such as uh, lack of appetite, disturbed sleeping, you know, moodiness. I got to the point where I would consume 7,000 calories on average a day and eat about 400. You know, I lost, you know, I'm six foot two, about 180 pounds. I got down to 165 pounds in no time. And, you know, those are things couldn't sleep more than one or two hours at a, at a time. You get moody. So there are there are a lot of ancillary factors that come into play that you need to be aware of. And I find that it really helps to write them down and then kind of have a checklist. You know, if you use a training software like Training Peaks or, you know, uh, today's plan, they allow you to do all these things and just, hey, you know what, if you check more than two boxes, it's time to 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 pull back and uh, and and just be be aware because you you don't get any faster by burying yourself. You get faster by resting. Right, which is a whole other like industry now. It's like the recovery industry. I talked about. Um, I don't know if you've seen her her book, um, Christy Ashwanden. Um, it's good oh. to go. It's on like the whole industry about recovery. Um, I had her on several weeks ago. And she talks about all these different recovery methods and kind of debunk certain things and kind of bring things, certain things back. Um, I don't know if you've seen this. I'm sure it's, it's probably where you live, but like there was an ad on the radio this morning again for um, it's like IV fluid replacement recovery. Yes. And it's like you, there's a, there's that other direction you go where it's that same mentality that says more is better and then listens to us in this conversation says, okay, recovery is good. More recovery is better. And then starts to do dangerous things like have people that aren't clinically trained to use needles <laughs> putting IVs in you. And God knows uh, what's in that IV. I mean, I'm sure right. some of it is controlled by the FDA, but I think it's a, it's a triathlete or, you know, elite athlete mentality in general. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that almost the 80s way, you know, it, when you're not training, your competitor is, and when you meet a, meet him or her in a race, they will beat you. It's that fear that someone else is doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to pull back from that, which is very hard because there's industries, you know, multi-billion dollar industries based around this. You know, look at yourself. Everybody's an individual. Find what works for you. And there is, there is that optimal solution for you that might not be what, you know, Jan Frodeno does or Craig Alexander did or, you know, some other Olympian. But it works for you. And in the end, you can only do what's good for you to be the best you can be. I, I can't remember who. I don't know if it's Sebastian Keenly or I, I want to say it's Keenly off the, off the top of my head, but I could be very wrong here. I feel like, there, you know, there's almost like, almost like a, a pissing contest about who can do more miles all the time, you know? Yeah. And it's, I think it was Keenly who was like, his miles were like way short of what everybody, everybody else was t- saying. And he, I think, if it was him, whoever it was, was saying well, almost like, oh, should I be embarrassed by that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're still killing everybody on, on race day. Yeah. I mean, I think it was I think the Tim DeBoom area era was, you know, he was known for the build were 700 mile weeks, you know, 50,000 yards in the pool and 100 miles of running each week for four months straight. You know, I, I, I contend that most people that try that are going to, you know, end up quitting the sport within three weeks. Right. Right. Nobody can handle that. 
Yeah. It's this, there's a, a college coach who had the philosophy, not my college coach, fortunately, um, but in our conference, he had the philosophy of he'd bring freshmen in and it was, you run 100 mile weeks to be on this team. If you can make it, you make it. If we break you, you're gone. And he didn't care. It wasn't about individualization. It was either you can conform to my system or you can't. Well, that's self-selection right there, right? I mean, right. I'm going to select, you know, I'm going to bring in a hundred people. Three of them are going to make it and they're yeah. going to be heroes. Yeah. Oh, and it's like, did, I know, I know, I know for a fact that I, he, cause he had a pretty big talent pool. So it's like, if you had just stopped and thought about, you know, what the limiters are for each of those individual athletes and kind of tailored their programs, you probably would have had an even more, you know, impressive team. team because you didn't break so many people. Well, no, you know, it's, you know, we kind of take it for granted now with all the data that we have and the visibility into the individual uh, abilities. I mean, we can individualize training levels for everybody. I mean, I can look at a power curve and decide, okay, you know what, you need to do two and a half or two minutes and 27 second intervals at X watts for the run. Back then we didn't have it. So it was, hey, you know what, this is the training program that works. And that's what happened. We, we will never know how many people, you know, were kind of weeded out because they just didn't have the personalized training that they would have needed. And mm -hmm. they could have been much better than, you know, the Olympic gold medalist. We'll never know. I think today is we are starting a great era of training and coaching that allows you to personalize things at a level that was until now almost un unheard of. You would have to go into a human performance lab with force plates for running or ergometers for the bike to get some of this data. And it, that was out of reach for most people to spend, you know, three, $400 an hour on mm -hmm. a regular basis. But now every workout you do will just feel, it will file through and all your data is there and we can just see, see it evolving on, you know, right. in real time. Right. Well, and see, I know, you know, you're talking about being really like quantitatively focused. I'm very qualitatively focused. Like I don't run races with a watch if I can help it. For the longest time, I did not have a power meter on the bike, although it has been very helpful since I've had one in the last few years. Um, do you have kind of a strategy for any kind of qualitative input into what you do, or are you, you strictly looking at, you know, these are the numbers, this is your set, that's just what it is, and nothing else? Or, or are you, is there a qualitative side? Absolutely. I think, you know, my approach is I love data. Data tells me a lot. But data is nothing more than a tool. And you are the foremost expert in your body. So even if the data says you can do this set, if you don't feel it or it feels too hard, there's something wrong. So the biggest question I always ask my athletes, and they're always surprised because I'm such a quant head, is how did you feel? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's immensely important to have the qualitative with the quantitative. The quantitative is your tool bag, but on race day or on any day, it has to come from how you feel and how your body is doing. On race day, it's great to have you all your data, but what happens if your power meter dies? If you are so right. dependent on your gadgets and they fail, you need to learn what 300 watts feels like or what race pace feels like. And sometimes I'll have sets where I'll have my athletes, hey, you know what, I want you to run you know, three by two miles at 300 watts, but I want you to keep your watch in your pocket and go by feel, and then we'll see how close you get. And it's always amazes, amazes me and them how quickly they learn what X amount of effort feels like, mm -hmm. and then they become better. And on race day, they'll say, hey, you know what? I, my watch broke, or you know, I had an athlete recently that did a, a triathlon, and he lost his watch on the, on the swim, mm -hmm. went to the bottom of the bay. And, but he said, you know what? My power numbers are still right on, on both the bike and the run, because we did so much training mm -hmm. going by feel. And I mean, I could, I, I can tell you, I mean, that's what you, what, that's what you live, live for as a coach to kind of hear that kind of story. But right. that is, you know, sometimes when you're a quant head, you need to get reminded that it's not all about the numbers. The numbers are important, but numbers are nothing more than the byproduct of the process. And you need to know what that process feels like to be able to do it and do it repeatedly. Yeah. I, I so I have another show. It's just, I'll call it a show, but it's just me like talking about running and long distance running and stuff. And I'm, I, I always preach about rate of perceived exertion as like basically the pinnacle of running because when all else fails, that's what you can rely on. Yep. And, and can, you kind of talked about this. I, so I, recently in this, this kind of two week training block, so we had, 
kind of a fart lick set on the bike where we did 30 seconds hard, 130 off. And there was, you know, 12 to 15 of them, depending on whether it was last week or this week, we did it twice. And the first week, it's, it, was, it was assigned basically as the 30 seconds should be slightly above zone five. So you're not crushing it. But they're but hard. You're going a little bit harder than zone five. So I so when I went and did that, my, zone five for me ends currently, my current fitness ends around 325 watts. So if I'm hitting 330, 340, well, you know, I'm hitting the numbers. But when I did it, because partly because I was fresh, it was the first workout I'd done in week one. You know, I went by rate of perceived exertion and said, I need to go comfortably hard, which is right above zone five, right? So then I think my average numbers ended up like 390. So, you know, I could have missed basically 60 watts of work if I was only stuck on the numbers. This is the number versus like I did it in, and that was outside. I'm always a little bit higher on power outside than I am inside. I did it inside this week. Again, a few more intervals. I was probably 340, 350. Um, a little more fatigue, but, you know, RPE is still there. I kind of think of that in terms of um, the RPE both gives you the go-ahead, like in my case where if I had said, okay, I only can go to 330, well, then I'm limiting myself. Correct. But it also holds you back. Like this morning when I was tired, I wasn't trying to like, you know, crash the workout and hit it as hard as I could. I knew my body needed, you know, extra time. To, to get up to speed. So that's why I preach RPE so much is that it helps you make those adjustments each day versus being so stuck on that watch. I think you have it spot on. I mean, how often have you heard people say, oh, you know what, I, I took fourth place by a minute, but I felt so good, I think I could have gone faster. Yeah. I mean, data is great, but you have to watch out that it doesn't overdo it for you or it doesn't hold you back. So mm -hmm. that's why combination of data and RPE and then working your way through your data to know what that feels like is so important because, you know, nobody wants to ride looking at a, at a screen. I mean, there's, there's just it's not fun or run. Right. So you need to learn how, what your body is. And remember, tapering, we do it for a reason because you can have performance improvements of five to 15 percent. So if you are going through a training cycle where you're always tired and you're ri riding at, say, 300 watts, but on race day, your body is really capable of more. You're leaving time on the table. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to adjust and adapt. And that RPE and that that feeling, subjective feeling, has to be has to be part of the equation. Yeah. So I I want to see you mentioned using the the run power meter pod. I don't have one. I've seen them. Um, will you sell it to me? Will you, will, you, will you sell me on why I should get one? I, I'd love to find a reason to get one, but I, I since I'm so sold on, on RPE, I'm like, do I really need the power data for the run? It's, you know, it, it's, it's a good question and a question I get a lot from uh, newer athletes. Uh, my thing is what sold me the first time is I ended up buying it and then I went for a run and I didn't look at the data. And mm -hmm. I just looked at the data afterwards and I said, I'm running steady. And by all accounts, pace, normalized gradient pace, it was steady. But then the terrain I run in here is fairly hilly. Uh -huh. I noticed that I was leaving a lot of watts on the, on the table when I was going downhill as I was apparently dilly-dallying. And I was really burning myself up on any and all uphills. So okay. the biggest advantage that I find with running with power is the fact that you can appropriately pace, just like power on the bike. Mm -hmm. RP is great, but... RP will change with your fatigue, especially in long distance triathlon. You know, 200 right. watts may feel easy. The first 10 miles at mile 105, 200 watts may feel impossible. So this allows you to pace it correctly, pace it steady. And also in training allows you to develop that stamina at that specific intensity so you can sustain it on the ride. You know, how many times you go out for a five hour ride and then a brick run and you think you're keeping it steady, but your power decreases over time. So you're not really... Right accomplishing what you want to both in training and racing. Uh, the other thing is prescription. When you go by RPE and, and heart rate, the first few in, uh, repeats, especially the higher intensity, feel easy. And mm -hmm. the first part of, you know, longer steady state threshold work feels easy. And then at the end, it feels harder. So I noticed that 
effort-wise, when people are just going bar P, tends to be kind of a slightly decaying function mm -hmm. as opposed to staying steady. The most common thing you'll notice if you ride or run with power is, oh, you know, the beginning felt so easy, then it got so hard. But that forces you to sustain that effort and develop that stamina and fatigue resistance, which you otherwise wouldn't have if you just went by RP or heart rate because you would just fade off later in the interval. And yeah, I think I think that's you touched on that. That's, like, that's I think that's probably the hardest thing about RP only, which was like again, like with my pool workout this morning, I had slightly descending intervals, but. To get just slightly descending, I'm talking like a second per interval, 50s and 100s, you know, as the set progresses and you're 1,000, 2,000 into the set, that that RPE goes up very sharply. Yes. So you're at the end trying to hold what should be not too bad, and you're just like cranking as hard as you can go. You know, for me, I have dense legs, so I'm always like keep your legs out of the way, like really trying to engage my abs, which yep. is tough. But it's it, you, yeah. You just get that that sensation of like, this is more like a hard fifty than like a moderate fifty. When if yeah, if you try to keep that same, just an internal perception from the beginning, then yeah, you you really peter off and your time will just kind of drop. So you have to almost have to be used to going harder at the end, but appropriately harder. <laughs> and I think that's tough because. There's that, like we talked about earlier, that internal limiter that's kind of telling you, like, slow down, stop. Like, you're going too hard. Don't do that. And yep. then you get that positive feedback when you let off and your brain's like, oh, yeah, that's what I wanted you to do. Like, don't go as hard. This feels good. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, again, it's the ultimate goal is to be able to train with power and then be able to equate RP with power and learn the feeling of what a certain effort feels like irrespective of your fatigue level you know it's it's a it's a training tool it's a carrot and a stick right i mean sometimes you you feel like you're dying but it's really easy or sometimes you feel like oh this is really easy but you're hitting your numbers it can be very motivating the mm -hmm. other thing is with power especially on the run you can start seeing your power curve changing you can start seeing hey you know what my 1500 time my mile time my two mile time might not have changed but my power numbers have increased so all of a sudden i know i can go harder that is an incredibly powerful carrot what I notice with my athletes when they look at their power numbers, not only just the maximum power numbers, you know, you, you know all the, the, the heroes on the bike, the, oh, I hit you know, 1,500 watts today. Oh, that's, that's great. But you can For actually get, yeah, you can get those metrics over time, over race uh, significant times and durations that show, hey, you know what? You are getting better. Your 60-minute time, your 90-minute time, your 180-minute time, if you're a three-hour half Ironman cyclist, it's getting higher. So all of a sudden, you can then relate that into some of the other software packages and say, hey, you know what? What you did in 315 last year, nowadays, with your power sus uh, sustainability, you can do in 245. It, it's, it's amazing how motivating that is for athletes who say, I'm tired, I don't want to train anymore, to, oh, crap, let's do it again. Let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. That, that positive feedback loop. And yeah, it's, it's tough sometimes just because you get in the middle of whatever you're doing and then... It, it's easy to focus on right now and like, well, I don't feel good right now. It's like, okay, but you've put in all the work and you've made that progression. Like, I think even I've fallen in this mental trap here and there where it's like, you don't feel good. So you feel like you, you remember the times when you felt great and were performing great. And you're like, why don't I feel like that? Even though you may be in better shape now. Like I, I always say, um, I kind of got my father into running and he'd run and he'd like some days he'd run well and feel terrible. And some days he'd run terrible and feel good. And I'm like the correlation between feeling good, feeling bad and how your performance is, is not linear at all. It is not one-to-one -one in nope. any sense of the measure. It, they're almost, it's almost confusing how like, like how much of a dichotomy there is. And it's like, you could have the best day of your life and have felt the worst you ever have in part because you push yourself harder than you ever had before, or maybe you're in great shape. So you feel good and had a good day. So that RPE does have a limit. does have its limits. I think every tool you use in training has its limits. I, I think it would be foolish to think that, Hey, you know, we found the, 
the, the silver bullet that solves all our training problems. Mm -hmm. Because if it was out there, someone would have found it by now. I think synergistically using all of the tools we have at our disposal to, to achieve our best results is, is very important because everything, you know, there's many factors that come into our life. I mean, it's mm -hmm. none of us, well, maybe there's a few out there are professional triathletes that center our entire life on performance. So there's other things, there's sleep, there's stress, there's family, there's work, and it, it all plays into how you feel and how you perform. And that's where I think data kind of shines because data will cut through all that and say, Hey, you know what? Today was not a good day. And you can see in the data today was not a good day. So don't worry about it. So instead of having the feeling of, Oh crap, I didn't do very well. I, I stink. I'm not getting any better. You can say, Hey, you know what? I can see your heart rate, you know, at the beginning of the workout, your heart response was so-and-so. And the reasons are so-and-so, and that's why your performance was bad. So don't worry about it. Take a rest day. We'll move on to the next workout. And more often than not, the athlete will feel better. So it's, it's sometimes, you know, having the data to kind of back up bad performances is almost more important than having the data back up good performances because it gives something else to focus on rather than, you know, what we all feel like, ah, it was a terrible day. I can't believe it. I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to qualify whatever the, the response may be. Now you have something to back up and say, there's a backstop that tells you, don't worry, everything is going to be fine. It's just a blip in the, in the, in the series. Yeah. So I know, um, I kind of want to ask you about, there's this kind of scenario that happens every once in a while, basically a plateau. And, you know, for, I'll say old school coaches who are thinking, you know, this athlete should be progressing, but it's just flat all the way across. Do you ever see that like with your athletes? And then, you know, is there data to back up that kind of intuition that says they should be progressing? And then have you used, is there any kind of data that you can dig into that says like, this is where our issue is. Like, oh yeah. This is how we get past that plateau. Absolutely. And that's what I like about the data. That's, that's the, the part that I really enjoy. I mean, I mean, as coaches, we all have our training program and it goes through the periodization and it, you know, athletes should improve, but every athlete is different. So you, it's a learning process as a coach to learn how their body responds. I mean, in some cases it can be, Hey, you know, we're doing a whole bunch of, you know, tempo to threshold, extensive to intensive, a workout, but you're no longer improving. And then you look at the data. I had just one athlete yesterday that we looked at it and said, Hey, you know what? We're going to switch it up. Your percentile utilization of VO2 max on the bike is at the upper end of your range when we look at it over the last couple of years. So banging away at threshold is not going to help. We're going to swap our training to VO2 work because we need to raise that ceiling a little bit, which historically has been higher. So we can then continue improving on the threshold. Mm -hmm. Going back to running and running with power, I had an athlete last year in Europe who PR'd his 70.3 time, but we kept running into that, he's not progressing. Why is he not progressing on the run? And through running, we figured out that his psoas and hip flexors were tight because we looked at, you know, the, the metric I used was meters per watts per millisecond. So no matter how hard he was pressing or how short his ground contact time was, his stride length wasn't increasing. So there was a graph that was increasing and then plateauing. We did a round of stretching and activation work on his psoas and hip flexors. His stride length increased. That chart, meters per watts per millisecond, improved. And he was able to set his half marathon PR off of a bike that was his 70.3 bike PR. And it was purely nothing changed. The watts were the same. His heart rate response was the same but his ability to increase his stride length without overstriding on the front end of the stride made all the difference. So that was one of the, you know, the, the times where you can use data. And that's the beauty of data. You can start looking at why are we not improving? And instead of saying, well, I don't know, we're doing everything right. You can dig in and find the individual intricacy, intricacy of that one athlete and then kind of play mad scientist and really find it, play with it, address it and then you have your backend results. And sometimes it works great. Other times, you know, you might have to look at a, at a different factor. So I, I want to dig into that a little bit where you're saying you, you dug into a particular metric and it, it kind of indicated to you what the issue was. How, how do you know about that correlation between that particular metric and he probably has these tight muscles? Like where, where does that link come into play? 
it was, you know, it was an organic uh, discovery for, for me. I, I looked at his data and I decided I sat down and I spent eight hours in front of my screen. And I, as you know, I, I like charts. I created a whole bunch of charts and I tried essentially in data, you want to find a chart that plateaus, right? You want to find at some point performance no longer improves when you expect it to improve. So you start charting things and, you know, power and speed, power and stride length. And then I noticed stride length didn't improve. And then that gave me ideas. So you kind of organically dig deeper and you find something and then you kind of latch on like a dog and you don't let it go and you kind of dissect the data that pertains to that particular metric as much as possible. In this case, I started looking at, well, you know, what are the factors that affect stride length? Okay, it could be power, you know, does it co correlate with power? No, it doesn't. With speed? No, it doesn't. And then power per unit of time, that's when I really kind of the light bulb went off and I said, well, his stride length should increase because if you push harder, off the ground, you should move farther. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing some thinking about, you know, what could it be? Does he overstride? But then there's other data such as G-force impact forces that weren't increasing. So I know he wasn't overstriding on the front end. Right. And so I asked him, you know, are you tight when you do this? How can you move? You know, how's your movement? And we did some uh, some testing for uh, hip flexors and psoas, and the results were, well, you know, they're kind of tight. Let's start stretching. So it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great insight that I had all of a sudden. It was, let's dig in and find out until we find the solution. And you know, it was, it was, it was a great experience to be honest with you. I mean, it was basically what I really enjoy doing on the computer. <laughs> the data actually all paid off. That's. I feel like that's that whole scenario is basically like data science gone right. Is where you just keep digging and digging and going through the granular. We were talking about this before we got going about marketing in particular, but just how you, when you have enough data and you figure out what to do with it, it can tell you things that you wouldn't be able to see intuitively without just a almost a coincidence of like, say you were watching a video of him or something and, and thought about, you know, like once you have all that data, it's. And especially nowadays where you're no longer geographically constrained. I mean, this is an athlete that lives in Italy. I've never met him. I've never had a video of him running. You know, right. this would have been if you run with someone, you can probably see, hey, you know what? You do a track workout, your stride kind of doesn't doesn't look right. Right. But without seeing that, without having access to the, the physical presence of the athlete, the data is really quite amazing as and in, in what it can give you. I, I never really expected it to be quite as powerful as it's turning out to be. And especially in something like running where on the bike, you have three points of contact, right? You have your pedals. So there's only so much you can do with the data in terms of biomechanics. Right. But the biomechanics is almost free to do whatever it wants on the run because you spend so much time on in the air mm -hmm. that we're finding, and I think other people are doing much more impressive work than I am, we're finding so many correlations and so many things that can be diagnosed with this running in terms of diagnosed as in form corrections that mm -hmm. it, it really is revolutionizing how run training is happening. I, and so I, it kind of brings me to the point in... I think the old school method, certainly the method I grew up with was that there is not a right way to run, although I disagree with it nowadays, for the most part. Um, there are notable exceptions. Have, um, have you seen videos of like Tim Don running? Yes. Yeah, it's it's not pretty. It's but <laughs> again, at least it I, didn't used to be. The visual, the visual cues, I think, is what people were focused on is, you know, your arms and your knees have to drive a certain way. Right. The data doesn't really care about what okay. you look like when you run. It's essentially you're looking at the stick figure in run power because the, the, the stride pod at least has three accelerometers in the X, Y, and Z uh, cardinal directions, essentially. Right. So you can break down your power. Let's say you put out 300 watts and 200 of those are in horizontal power. The rest are in vertical and oscillatory power, lateral power. What that tells you is I don't care what you look like. You are wasting a third of your power in flopping around and bouncing right. around. Right. So let's, you know, when we look at form, I'm not talking about how you look. I'm talking about how you can become the most efficient. There is the one metric that I, I'm sure you read more of than you wanted to in my articles, the running effectiveness. Mm -hmm. That is essentially what you want to do. You want to get the most horsepower devoted to moving forward that you can become to become the most effective effective runner and that is actually all the all that we care about whatever you do if you can move your upper body or your flop your arms around 
or do whatever it is you want to do, as long as your watts turn into speed, I don't think anybody should should care about it. I think we spent a lot of effort and a lot of time trying to fo uh, force people to conform to a specific upper body movement. And for people that for whom it's not natural, I think that's actually a waste of energy. You're actually forcing them to waste more energy to try and look good when you really all you want to do is make them go faster. Right. Yeah, I, I like to pick. I like to pick on Tim because I I actually saw get, got to see him race in person in 2010 at uh, High V, but yeah, he has a lot of, at least at that time. Again, this is almost a decade ago now. He has a lot of upper body movement. It's this this, this rotational movement which you don't often see as being productive in most people. But he still he he runs like a madman. He I mean I'm pretty sure he won that race. He set the Ironman um, world record in Brazil. Was it yeah. last year? You know, so right. he's pretty quick. Yeah, I was like, it's, so I always feel like, as soon as I'm like, there is a right way to run. Then you see somebody that's do it like like Tim that does not run with, I'll say, conventional um, kind of aesthetics, but still just kicks everybody's ass. You know, I mean, in the end, it's kind of like a car. It, you know, it doesn't matter what you what it looks like how much horsepower it has if it doesn't convert it into acceleration and speed it, it it doesn't doesn't really matter and in running if you can put that put the watts down on the ground and turn them into meters per second have at it do whatever however you want to do it just turn those watts into meters per second and we're going to be fine yeah yeah um so i want to shift a little bit um, I think you're, you're saying earlier before we got going that you come from a finance background. Is that why you're so like quantitatively minded? I think I've always been quantitatively minded beforehand. I mean, I took the, the long route to adulthood. I, I mean, I went to college and I was a physics and astrophysics double major. Then I got my degree in environmental science. Then I went for a master's in conservation biology. And then I got my master's in finance. And I've, then I was a trader and I, I selected uh, mortgage bonds because they were the most complex instruments out there. So I've always liked numbers. I just, they give me some kind of a calm feeling that, Hey, you know what I can, if I can wait through these numbers, everything is going to be okay. I was never, you know, the most social, socially, uh, outward person. So I wasn't a marketer. I was, uh, the backroom mm -hmm. guy that only was brought out when, you know, you needed to get the answer to some hard questions, but numbers are numbers. And I just love to make numbers into solutions. And I found that in, you know, once I started training, I started understanding a few things and then I got some education and I realized that, hey, you know what, the numbers can really help me. I can I can turn them into 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 performance. I can turn them into positive, positive things. And they never talk back and they never argue with you. And they're always almost always right. Yeah, I <laughs> that's kind of the nice the nice thing I'll agree with about numbers is that the numbers are what they are. It's not a matter of negotiating. It's simply a matter of trying to understand and have them kind of reveal what they're trying to tell you rather than there's much more nuance to, you know, interacting with a person Yes. versus figuring out what the numbers are. I mean, that's, um, I, so I did calculus through high school and I, after high school, I said, okay, I'm done with math. And, um, Nope. No, <laughs> no, for whatever reason, no. Um, it, somehow I ended up with a math major <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was just like, oh, I'll take Calc two and I'll take Calc three. And it, it, for me, it was a matter of, I like solving problems and you know, it, it, going through these math classes, you're learning how to solve problems and create these solutions and build these logical worlds. And it does, it has nothing to do with like the soft skills of, you know, that interpersonal skills okay. that it doesn't come, I think, as easily to either of us as it does to some other people. Then um, you really have to work on that. So it's, it's, at least to me, it's almost, I think you kind of mentioned this, like almost more comforting just to like work with the numbers, deal with the things that are very almost straightforward versus like, how do I deal with this person and all of their emotional baggage and what they're dealing with today and whether they're hungry and there's no ambiguity with the numbers. Like you said before, right. they are what they are. So there's no reason to get mad at them. It's just, it's a little more relaxing because it allows you to take a step back and be more clinical about whatever the situation may be. And you just focus on it. Not to mention that 
you know, math is pervasive. I mean, it's called the universal language for a reason because, you know, whether I was in physics, in finance, in conservation biology, or in environmental science, math was the common thread. And right. as you know, I'm sure every, everybody has has heard that, but you know, you never believe it until you experience it. I mean, my oldest is in college now, and you know, she's asking why she has to take Calc three and four, and the answer is always the same because you're always going to need them. No matter what end up you what you end up doing in life, math is always going to be the underlying current. Even you know we we're talking earlier about marketing. There's math involved in marketing. Oh yeah. You know most people that go into marketing want to avoid math altogether, but nowadays with data analytics and the amount of data and big data that we have, math is pervasive in everything and anything we do. So it's it's I mean it's a good thing and it can be a bad thing at times. It can drive you bananas, but you know more often than not it solves the problem. Yeah. So. I'm kind of wondering, I mean, you have you have a whole journey. I think I asked you an email a long time ago before you wrote the articles, although I've forgotten. So, I mean, you grew up in Italy playing yep. soccer, and then you went through all of these progressions that you, you just gave us, so, uh, you know, physics and, and then your two different masters and finance, and here you are coaching. Um, do you have any form of ADD or, like, how <laughs> – how do you I, how do you you know continue on this kind of odd progression to where you are now? You know, I, I in Italy when I was growing up back in the in the eighties there was no ADD. It was just overactive children. So okay. I'm I, I I have no doubt that I would be diagnosed with ADD. You know, were I to turn into a child now and and go back through through school, but I, I think it's just I've always been told by you know my teachers and you know my, even my grandparents always stay curious, you know, always try and find something new. And I, I, I find it interesting and exciting. I mean, the idea of just not learning anything on a daily basis kind of scares me, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I really look forward to getting, getting on the computer and kind of looking at data and just seeing, you know, what, what, can I, what can I discover? What can I figure out today? And it just keeps your mind active and keeps life interesting. Yeah. How many, how many athletes are you working with now? Right, uh, right now, I only have about 15. Okay. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, That's a uh, pretty manageable number. Yes. And it's, you know, I, I, I tend to grow fairly slowly over time. I'm, yeah. I, you know, I make changes very quickly, but then I, I try and pace myself in, in, in growing because I want to provide the level of service that I think is, is appropriate. And as you can see with some of the data analysis, it takes time. So it's, uh, you know, there's, I'm looking at, yeah, at, I mean, at a lot said, of things. I think you said you sat down and like looked, looked at the data on that one, one athlete for like eight hours. I mean, it's a whole, this whole day dedicated to one person's one problem when you have, you know, everybody else you have to contend with as well. Absolutely. But yeah, going back to that ADD, I, I, that eight hours, I think felt like 15 minutes because I sat down in the morning <laughs> and then I got, I got called for dinner and I was like, wait, what happened to the day? But, uh, you know, I think that's the exciting exciting thing you know you're doing something you like when you're gonna get lost in in your daily activities as opposed to looking at the clock hoping for that five o'clock hour to arrive yeah right um before we go um so i ask everybody this question uh, because it's kind of universal uh since we're coming up on the end of the year i know i'm gonna have to come up with a new question for next year (laughs) but for now you're gonna get the same question i ask everybody i like to ask after a hard workout or a race kind of your uh, you know thought there doesn't matter what food would you choose for recovery if you could only choose one food for the rest of your life oh that's uh that's both a tough one and an easy one i mean i'm an italian and i i love to eat so a plate of pasta or gnocchi is what would be my go-to if i had to do one that would have to be it i know it's not very original but it's what I would go for. Hey, that's okay. I just, that's the big thing is I like I love to hear what people like to eat because I get I get all kinds of response. I get like I'll call call my PC answers, which aren't wrong. None of these are wrong answers, um, but you know things that are healthy for you, and you would expect people to say, you know, oh, yeah. this is what I eat. And I get other people that are like, I have a beer, or I have pizza, or what. And just it's interesting to see where people focus on for recovery, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's both. Well, I think that's the the biggest weakness in a lot of people's training uh, approaches is is the recovery part. People focus very very hard and work very very hard in their training, but then and for a lot of people, it's not a you know it's a necessity. It's it's not a, a luxury they have. Is hey, I work out in the morning, then I got to go to work and I got to get grab breakfast on my way to the office. But I find that when you focus on that recovery and you know try and get that 
you know, the, the three to one or four to one protein to carb ratio within the first 30 minutes and then continue with your carb, you know, ingestion with that eight to 12 hours after your workout for a long workout gets you ready for the next workout. It really helps. I mean, you know, I tend to be as, you know, a data geek, I tend to log everything that I eat mm-hmm. and I tend to plan, you know, hey, you know what? I know I need X amount of protein today, but your body can only absorb X amount in a one sitting. So I plan out all my all my meals throughout the day. You know, it, it, you can get a little crazy, but there are tangible benefits to doing so. And uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of athletes especially, would benefit with a little bit of extra planning on their on their recovery and feeding. Yeah, and I think that comes up almost every time I, I talk to um, a registered dietitian or nutritionist, anybody that comes on that like that's what they do. We always talk about, I'm especially bad at this, is the, the planning part. We need to plan out instead of, you know, because I'm running two businesses and I do the podcast and I, I, you know, I have family life and all these things. Got to take the dog for a walk because he's staring over at me. Um, <laughs> you have to do As all these do. things and then food almost becomes on the back burner, even though it should be, you know, right up front as a priority. So that's part of the reason I love to ask people that question. It's, it's a great question. And I think it gives you a lot of insight on how, how focused they are on their, on their training. Cause there are some athletes that have everything scheduled and they, you know, they make all their meals on, on the weekend and they have it, you know, timed down to the second and to the gram. And then there's other people that, you know, take more of a, not nonchalant, but hey, you know what? This is fun. This is supposed to be fun. And I can't just plan every minute of my life going through it. But, you know, it wouldn't be nice if we all could have a private chef that, you know, has it all timed out and serves our food to us when we need it. Yeah, that used to be that used to be my goal. But I don't now I'm like, I'll, I'll call myself retired. But um, since I don't have as many like high performance goals, I'm like, uh, do I really ever need a, a private chef? Like, uh, I don't, I'll probably skip on that one. But uh yeah i don't know Marco, i mean I, I wouldn't take it yeah right right um marco if people want to find you where where can they find you learn more about what you're doing get in touch with you if they want to see about having you coach them sure uh my website is uh nicoli coaching one word.com and uh, you can find all the information and uh reach out to me i always like to talk to clients uh, or even prospects or even athletes that are not looking for, for coaching, but they just want to have a conversation and ask some questions. As you can tell, I, I love to talk about this stuff. So I'm always happy to talk to athletes and, you know, answer their questions, whether they're interested in, in coaching or not. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on today, Marco. Thank you very much for having me. It was great talking to you.